0: Coming up on Two Idiots Taking on the World.
1: Business and government are like two kindergartners on a map fighting with each other most of the time. It, which kindergartner do you favor? You know, one of them has a halo, but he's just another kindergartner. That's government. So. Um...
0: Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Two Idiots Taking On the World. Today, we are joined by our expert, Amity Schles. She is a three time best selling author and chair of the Coolidge Foundation. Uh, welcome, Amity. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Well, I'm just glad to be here, and uh, nobody's an idiot. Um, so, it, but it's glad, I'm very glad to be with you because what you're really saying with the title of your podcast is, Let's ask basic questions and be unafraid to sound stupid um, in order to get at um, real truths. That is, there's a lack of vanity in your title and your approach to this show that's uh, very respectable.
2: Thank you. Yeah, that that sums it up. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I guess briefly to start off, like who was President Coolidge? Because I know you're a Coolidge historian and um, what does he represent in terms of American presidents
1: in the high school textbooks. You don't read too much about Coolidge, um, and he's kind of a you know a seat warmer between or among more flamboyant presidents, uh, such as the Roosevelts. Uh, And uh, when there is reference to Coolidge, sometimes it's hostile. People think he caused a great depression. Coolidge served uh, in Washington first as vice president from March nineteen. 20, he was, sorry, 21, he was elected uh, as the vice presidential candidate with Warren Harding, a Republican, on a platform of quote-unquote normalcy, and we can discuss that. Uh, Then he became president because the last president, Harding, passed away in the summer of 1923, and suddenly Coolidge, a New Englander who had been governor of the state of Massachusetts, became president. Uh, He was elected on his own Um, in 1924. Very successfully, he won an absolute majority, beating two other parties. And there was a significant third party. The progressives were the third party who gained more than 15% of the popular vote. And usually when uh, there's a three-party situation, the best a candidate can do in the United States is to gain a Plurality, which is why Coolidge's absolute majority was impressive. He got more than the Democrats and the progressives, La Follette's party combined. He could have run again in 1928. He chose not to, um, which was almost incomprehensible to his party because he was very popular. Um, how could he let them down? Popular candidates have an obligation to run again in the view of politics, right? So he he chose not to run again in 28. Instead, Herbert Hoover was elected uh, that year, another Republican, though very different from Coolidge. So that's in 29. Coolidge retreated from political life and returned to Northampton, Massachusetts, where he had lived, um, and he passed away uh, around the time just before President Roosevelt was inaugurated in 1933.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I mean, he definitely is kind of a footnote um, in history books. I mean, I had the privilege of learning a lot about him, but I know a lot of students don't. Um, but one of the, you know, either misconceptions or realities you can tell us about Coolidge. Um, is that many say that he caused the Great Depression, as you kind of touched on. I personally don't agree with this view, um, but I'm wondering what you would say to someone who who claims that.
1: Well, there's a sort of logic chain in the standard argument. It goes like this, the 20s were a lie. They were a champagne bubble in great Gatsby's glass, right? They were false growth. And we know that because Gatsby so beautifully described the 29 crash. That's the narrative, right? And then that was, capitalism it failed us and something about income inequality there too right like the characters in great gatsby um the poor girlfriend of tom, the careless tom the reckless tom and great gatsby i'm using gatsby because most people have read it um you know the working class were trod upon and uh then The narrative is uh, capitalism failed, the market went down almost 90%, the stock market, this killed America, all banks failed, we hear about all that, and capitalism of the 20s led by Calvin Coolidge because he did, I would say, preside beside, not even preside over because he was so modest a strong growth and an era of capitalism, um, dare to blame. And in the 30s, uh, they wrecked the economy so bad that in the 30s, it took a decade to recover. And Franklin Roosevelt gave us hope through that period. And we, again, realized capitalism was insufficient. And the federal government had to intervene with the New Deal, which was an unprecedented intervention in the economy um, of the 30s. So each of the components of that chain is questionable. Um, and it gets, starting with Gatsby. Um, Gatsby was written in the early 20s. It was not written in for the late 20s. It was published in 1925. The crash it described was an early 20s crash after which the US economy recovered and most people had jobs and skilled workers had strong wage increases. Also, lynching went down and other you know terrible signs of inequality in America diminished um, not wage inequality, but this sort of, um, I don't know, I would say what you call the opportunity meter went up. What did people get in the 20s, um, including people who are non-rich? They got jobs. That's a number one thing. The most important thing for Americans is a job. They got wage increases if they were skilled. They got indoor plumbing. What is the dividing line now when we work in international development between really poor and only somewhat poor? It is definitely indoor plumbing. That is, you know, when we work in a troubled country or an undeveloped country or a less developed country, we want number one, clean water, clean plumbing. That is when the US uh, became uh, more uh, a, a country with toilets. We had toilets before, but fewer. Um, I think that's a very good measure for, for the current period because so many of us work um, on irrigation or clean water projects internationally and nationally to understand that vast difference. Um, we, they also got radios and cars in the 20s. Finally, um, the 20s, uh, you know, one of the, the hidden heroes of the economy are, are productivity gains because when you see um, productivity gains which is uh, making more widgets um, you know, in an hour than you did before um, then that's more profit for the employer, but it's also more leisure for the worker. America had a six-day work week, which is kind of hard. Um, up until the 20s, in the 20s, we were able to earn adequate wages on a five-day work week for the first time in a in large, large number. So the 20s, Coolidge's decade gave us Saturday. That is, the roar was real. The 20s really did roar. Gatsby's a bit of a myth. And we skate past it in high school and take away um, the cartoon of Gatsby, which is a fine book, very poetic, um, but doesn't accurately describe the decade in the way, uh, in the depth that it needs and warrants description. Um, The crash came, markets crash all the time. Um, This inevitability that we assume now um, that there would be a Great Depression forever, once the market crashed in '29, that that is a myth. Um, we'd had plenty of very deep crashes before, not 90% or almost, but close. Um, when you look, you know, very very significant crashes. Um, we're just building a chart at the College Foundation about those. Um, and the economy had come back. Um, this time it didn't. Why? Uh, well, every year there was a different reason. The Great Depression wasn't uh, one great. Um, you know, disaster that hung over us forever. It was a series of policy errors over 10 years. So um, if uh, recovery is, um, one could anthropomorphize recovery and say, it's like a person, recoveries make choices. The recovery chose to stay away for a different reason every one of the years of the Great Depression, the 1930s. If you wanted to headline um, the tendency of the recovery to stay away, why? The recovery did not like intervention by government, basically, but we made monetary errors, we made um, fiscal errors, we made intervention errors, we followed weird policies, and uh, all that all that happened um, in the 30s. Coolidge wasn't to blame for it. Uh, remember, when Coolidge was president, there was no SEC. And the stock market was not that important to most Americans. So the cartoon of the crash is all Americans lost money. No, a few Americans lost money. Americans had bought on margin. Okay, he had always warned them against buying on margin, by the way. But there was no federal authority that ran the economy. uh, That is, the Wall Street economy. Until the 30s, the SEC was created after Coolidge. Um, And uh, let's see what else. I mean, the, the growth in the 20s, um, was just real enough that we shouldn't discount it either. There's actually a paper by a Nobel Prize winner that says the stock market in 1929 wasn't too high, which was the peak of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. It was at 381. That was more than double what it had been recently. It made someone like Coolidge nervous, but he didn't believe the federal government should manage it. Um, and, uh You know, a lot of the interesting inventions of the 1920s later did show up um, as big economic growth, um, I don't say uh, carriers, such as uh, the idea of television. That proved economically important much later. The idea of it and the beginning of the project came in the 20s. Um, so a bunch of errors. Um, uh, one could uh, spend a few minutes blaming Herbert Hoover, who is a Republican like Coolidge, but very different in temperament and philosophy. Coolidge was uh, Coolidge was a true free marketeer, he believed in low taxes and restrained government. Hoover was a uh, but just by temperament a kind of smartest guy in the room um, should jump in whenever there's a crisis. So when the market crashed under President Hoover, Hoover jumped in and he did a few things Coolidge probably would not have done. One was to insist on high wages, on the theory that when workers earn high wages in a downturn, they'll shop and promote recovery. Coolidge would not have easily agreed with that um, in, in big policy. Uh, High wages sound nice, and that's a a darling theory, but the negative aspect of it is, if an employer cannot afford high wages, what will he do? Um, Then the government is telling him to impose high wages, that would be President Hoover. He will um, bend to the government's wishes, cede, pay higher wages than he can afford, and rehire less, that is, it hurts employment when employers have to pay higher wages than they can or are comfortable with in a downturn. That was a new policy. It was continued throughout the 30s. High wages were, on theory, good because that goose demand. Um, but from a point of view of an employer, if you're forced to pay high, pay high wages, either through uh, pressure from an executive or law, and there were laws both under Hoover and certainly under Roosevelt that forced wages up, then you will rehire less. What happened in the 30s? We had unemployment over 10% the whole time. The undertold story is that un- employers wanted to reemploy, but they could not afford it. And their whole dissertation's written about this. They're just not in standard histories. Um, the, the fact that there was deflation often um, made that situation worse because uh, employers agreed to wages that turned out to be more expensive than they had thought when they agreed. That's deflation, right? Um, so it, this is all in the mix. Generally, people blame like to uh, say it was all monetary. It wasn't. Um, the first few years of the Great Depression were monetary. The rest of it um, was monetary plus perverse policy by government opposite to Coolidge. Um, so so I think you just have to retell the whole story of the 20s and 30s, sticking closer to the data and moving away from the sentimental narrative. And you'll see um, that the situation was much more complex than that. Um, if you want to blame Calvin Coolidge, and I try to be uh, fair to him, here's what I would blame him for. He supported the tariff. He did not sign the evil tariff that is taught in history classes, Smoot-Hawley. Hoover signed that. But if you want to do a counterfactual, you could suppose that he would have supported that tariff because his party did tariff um, made the depression worse. And it did something else far more terrible. It uh, discouraged Europe because Europe owed the United States money from World War I. Europe was teetering out of democracy into autocracy and fascism. Just at a time when we should have been friendlier to Europe, we slapped tariffs on their exports and they needed strong exports to pay the debt they owed us. We slapped them in the face with strong tariffs. So in that way, anyone who supported tariffs contributed to the rise of autocracy and worse in Europe. And by the way, also in Cuba, in Cuba.
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely a lot to unpack there. Um, I guess I kind of wanted to go a little bit back. So I think um, at least I read uh, that during the 1920s or like specifically 1922 to 1923, there was at least a definite dip in the stock market. But what happened was that the government basically did nothing. They kind of just allowed that to ride out. And in the end, I guess that did lead to or fake or whatever economic growth in into the nineteen uh, late 1920s. So I guess, do you think that we should like extrapolate that to what we should have done with the Great Depression and the 1929 stock market crash, basically kind of just leave everything as it is and just hope that the uh, capitalism will solve it?
1: Well, there was no, f- on balance, capitalism works. It doesn't always work perfectly. Sometimes you need government, but not as much as we think. That's my position, and that's what the evidence suggests. Um, there's a wonderful book by a guy named James Grant um, called "The Forgotten Depression" about the depression of the early '20s, which is presumably what 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 F. Scott Fitzgerald was describing. Um, the The market went high or, or didn't. You know the market the market struggled, it crashed. Um, what did the government do? Uh, in the face of a downturn overall. It did two things we would never argue for today. Um, the Federal Reserve increased interest rates. Oh, my goodness, you're supposed to loosen in a Trump. Oh, it acted pro-cyclically. Heavens, I'm going to break out into a, a tears. A pro, we're not supposed to be pro-cyclical, right? That is, you're not supposed to encourage the direction interest rates are heading in anyway. You're supposed to be counter-cyclical, sort of like in sailing, you know, lean the other way uh, than the wind. Um, The the government increased interest rates in a weak period. It also cut back the federal budget. After World War I, we were cutting back the federal budget. We continued to do so in the face of economic weakness. What? We didn't apply a stimulus. In fact, we withdrew stimulus. How horrible. And indeed, unemployment rose over 15% in some cities. And Jim Grant really does a good job with the Forgotten Depression describing this, which won the Hayek book prize. So um, what happened? We had a terrible downturn. What else happened? No one remembers that downturn. Why? Because it was so short. To put it in market language, we allowed the market to clear, prices found their level, and then they began to rise without distortion. That it, what we didn't say in 2008 after that was we distorted prices through rescues so markets didn't clear and we had a, a really unexpectedly distressing and anemic recovery because the government was messing in the market. The market didn't know what it was really worth. It was confused. Um, you always, when you're in trouble, have to allow prices to clear and quote unquote, find their bottom. And then the market, once it knows what something is worth, will trade. And you know, growth can happen. Prices can go up and also growth can happen. Or begin to invest is more important too. If you don't know what anything's w- worth, you don't invest. There was this so-called capital strike um, after World War I. You hold off in the money. Well, great ideas don't get money when everyone's confused by a subsidy situation. And uh, recovery in productive areas and growth in productive areas is delayed. Um, so this was all very well documented. And in the early 20s, they had a discussion specific to the wages. Should we adapt a new, adopt a new policy and start pushing for high wages to bring us out of recovery? That was modern think then, stimulus. And at that time, that policy didn't take hold um, strongly. However, people remembered it. And when the next downturn came, Hoover said, I and Henry Ford will keep wages high. Um, in order to stimulate the economy, and we began to see worse, and and, and importantly, more enduring unemployment than we'd seen in the past. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, that's actually pretty interesting. No one really talks about that crash really at all, Um, and I think, uh, you know, a question that I had is that I'm generally a very big supporter of free market economics and of capitalism, Um, but I think um, one concern that that I have is that know this business cycle can be pretty crushing if every eight years you have a recession um, isn't that a pretty large flaw in the system and you know is that cycle inevitable or is there any way that we can curb it at all
1: that cycle is inevitable and it's only dangerous it's dangerous to companies it's actually useful because companies that are um fake business propositions or uh, flawed business propositions. You don't have to accuse them by calling them fake. Need to die in order mm. to leave room for strong companies um, and better ideas to, to thrive. It's That's just a natural clearing process. If you have three schools and one is bad and one is good and one is medium, you don't want to pour all your money into the bad school. You want to be sure there are more that the that the good school scales right that they're more of the good school right it's just like schools or anything else if there are three treatments for a health problem and one is far better than the others you don't wish that all three are treated fairly you wish that the best vaccine um or the better vaccines be available and you have to live with the fact that the less good vaccine will go away even though you might like the people who work at the less good vaccine company then maybe they'll find other jobs. There's always gonna be change and disruption in an economy. It's not a choice between disruption and no disruption. It's a choice between the kind of disruption and whether the disruption is productive. Recessions happen all the time. Uh, Companies, I mean, if you would interview um, business leaders, business leaders like debt because it's fun and enables them to scale faster, right? They leverage money and that makes them feel intelligent and brave um but maybe businesses should have less debt maybe they should have a kitty for downturns maybe you know maybe 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 you know it, 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 so um it, it, recessions are essentially inevitable and the question is the quality of the recession um for example um uh, i'm trying to think after 2008 a lot of groups got different support but the job creation was disappointing the education was disappointing and a lot of people lost a lot of years because we were busy helping people to recover from the depression. Uh, sorry, the recession instead of what uh, creating a situation whereby um, interesting sectors would grow easily and offer jobs, um, you know, to um, new jobs, interesting jobs, change jobs, um, and that's also good for older people. Older people are more flexible than they used to be. They're they're proving that now. Um, So on balance, what is more humane? I would argue on balance uh, an economy with less than 5% unemployment is more humane, not a quote unquote humane economy that has a weak labor force participation and um, hidden unemployment that adds up to over than 5%, which is what we often have nowadays. Um, You know, people who never wanna work, who don't think they can work, who are under 30, that's a national tragedy, that's a crime. And we've caused that through our sort of um, supposedly humane policy. But uh, the in the '30s, what happened was the New Deal, which was the centerpiece of the Roosevelt administration and a follow-on to what Hoover did, just stronger, failed. It absolutely failed. How did it fail? It failed to create an environment where people could get serious jobs. So it failed us. If your dad was unemployed for 10 years, your family was really hurt, not just financially, but emotionally, structurally, um, and so on. That was the thirties. The Dow didn't come back either. So why didn't the Dow come back? Not just because it was rather high in 1929, the Dow didn't come back because people were afraid to invest in companies because the government threatened the companies. Simple as that. And they said it at the time. This was like mainstream. The chief economist of Chase Bank, um, not exactly you know some obscure think tank. The chief economist of Chase Bank, Benjamin Anderson, wrote that the Great Depression um, was due to the decision by government to play God. And then comma or dot, dot, dot elsewhere, he wrote, when the government, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like this. When the government failed at playing God, and you think of this year too, the government response was not to retreat and uh, allow markets to settle, but rather to choose to play God more vigorously. If this intervention does not suffice, I'll do a second, much stronger intervention. The, um, and he wrote that in a book called Economics and the Public Welfare very clearly. So, um, you know, and in, in weekly newsletters to, um, to bank customers at Chase so this was a kind of knowledge in the business community and it was more knowledge in the press as well because the press was more um balanced in those days i wouldn't say the quest was right wing Um, it was just uh very close to common sense very close to the towns it served america was more of a main street place less of a television place and the the general experience was the new deal sounds nice and it feeds some starving people fine um, that's important, we're for that, um, but it could do that, have food programs without trying to take over the whole economy, which is what the New Deal did. It's, it's perfectly valuable for ha- to have a government have soup cans and turkeys and cots and temporary jobs and training for unemployed. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a whole-scale intervention in the economy on the pretext of a crisis.
2: Okay, so I guess in that regard, would you kind of agree more with um, that in general, like regulating the economy turns out to be like worse than, for example, government spending? Or like, do you think both of them are more or less equally bad and we should try to restrict both of them?
1: Well, think about them from the point of view of business. When does a business want to grow? It, It doesn't need like a perfect situation. It needs... It's like, when do you want to go out on a walk? You need the weather to be not too bad. (laughs) Can't be raining too hard. You need not too bad. Or Adam Smith said, um, again, I'm paraphrasing. So forgive me if I don't get it quite right. But all you need to grow is peace, easy taxes, and a reasonable sense of the rule of law. That more or less, more or less, the justice system is fair. More or less. And then you'll go, that's about it. So it, sometimes regulation is necessary. Sometimes big rats do bad things. Business is no worse nor better than government. But the, the presumption that government is somehow inherently better, that uh, history suggests um, is a fallacious argument. Um, it's not better. It's about equal. Business and government are like two kindergartners on a map fighting with each other most of the time. It, which kindergartner do you favor? You know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, um, the, one of them has a halo, but he's just another kindergartner. That's government. So um, it, that, that's the problem. So the 30s was a, quite a damning indictment of intervention. Um, in particular, um, the factor that was understudied for various reasons beyond the labor, which I mentioned was uncertainty. Roosevelt was a great hero. He was a good leader in World War II. Uh, he was a confident man, and um, but he was a mediocre economist and he he called for bold, persistent experimentation. And okay, that's nice, but it, that is not something business wants to hear. You don't wanna go out when a truck might bold, persistently run you over on your road, right? You don't wanna go in a situation with a serious high hazard, so you stay home. Bold, persistent experimentation scares business one thing that was interesting to me vis-a-vis Coolidge was when I was an undergraduate and in high school, I learned about normalcy. It's sort of a drive-by on the AP preparation for U.S. history. Harding and Coolidge ran, ran on a, um, a, a platform of normalcy. It's like a terrible word. What do they mean by that? They mean we all have to be normal? I mean, what a terrible thing to ask for. They mean we, mean we all have to be the same little rabbits, you know? Um, that's not what they meant at all. What they meant was a relatively normal environment so you can be weird and have fun and start businesses or do whatever you do. That is a certain parameters that are more or less set, certain tax parameters, certain regulatory parameters, definitely certain kind of rule of law parameters. That's all you need is a normal environment. Harding was an unfortunate speaker. His uh, words don't age well, so he sounds kind of plummy when long sentences when you listen to them now, but Hoover, um, Coolidge was pretty plain about it and pretty good. He just said, um, the chief business of the American people is business. That's what it is. The chief ideal of the American people is idealism. Business wouldn't work unless we are idealistic and attempted to be upright. That's very clear. It makes sense. It's on balance true. You know, um, it, so it was the, the gifts of the 20s, um, were forgotten in the thirties and then later for different reasons, but are very important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so the, one of president Coolidge's, you know, methods of re- returning to normalcy was the fact that he had the courage to say no. Um, and I think that, you know, one thing you touched on earlier was that um, there are certain kinds of humane economies that are, have worse outcomes. Um, but we consider them to be like humane morally. Um, and, do you think that it's because of this that it's hard for presidents to say no because they see policies that you know look good on paper, make them feel good, make the voters feel like they're doing good, but in reality, they do more harm? Or you know, what is the real narrative behind why presidents always act more than they should?
1: Well, because political advisors tell them to do so. The parties are cowards, both of them, right? So they, oh, I don't want anything bad to happen on my watch. I won't get reelected. And um, that's what's interesting about Coolidge. He was a modern president, and yet he did say no, and he was elected for the first time, you know, because he'd inherited the office. Um, Sometimes saying no gets a better result, and people know that. I mean, they know from their own family experience that. Um, if someone says no to, I don't know, uh, buying a certain toy, you can't drive when you're 14. No, you can't drive when you're 14. As much as you want to drive, you probably can't drive when you're 14 unless you're on a farm. You can't drive. When you're 18, you say, well, I might have driven fine when I was 14, but a lot of people I know probably wouldn't have been good drivers when they were 14. So that was a good rule, even though I objected to it. It's about like that. Coolidge understood something important, which is if you say yes to a subsidy to a new group, you will never. The government will never have the courage after to say no. It's very much harder to kill something than it is to let it grow, and that's why he said it's better to kill a bad bill rather than pass a good one. You want to stop the subsidy trend in a certain area before it starts, um, and. Uh, the um you know that's that's very brave but um the main problem i think is that the politicians listen to these advisors and by the time they're done with their campaigns you can't distinguish between between them you know the democratic party and the republican party they all say give the voter something well um that's nice you know but it, it, eventually one runs out of money mm-hmm.
2: That's definitely very fair and I, I just kind of to switch directions right now oftentimes I mean I guess are there some instances in which saying no like doesn't work out for example like to point to one specific example I know that Coolidge has been criticized for his actions during uh, the flood in Mississippi during, I
1: think, 1927. Well, well, well the um, question is, yeah, the question is whether that worked out or not. So what happened was yeah. there was a big flood in Mississippi. Uh, whenever you want to attack federalism, that is our system of, of decentralization where states are powerful. You always want to attack it, if, if you're a debater, um, when there's some kind of humanitarian crisis. Because federalism works for years and then a crisis happens and the state fails, that state or appears to fail, right? What Coolidge wanted was the states to pay for infrastructure. Whose fault was it the flood was so bad? It was the states. They failed to build, the Mississippi flood was in a number of states. They failed to build good dams and to rework their waterways the right way. They failed um, in a million other ways relating to agriculture. Um, If Coolidge, when this flood happened, imagine terrible flood, Uh, I'll tell the story, terrible flood of the Mississippi, Uh, wiping away just tens and tens of thousands of homes. There's a wonderful book about it by um, oh gosh, John Barry. Um, Terrible, terrible flood and Coolidge was president and should he go down was the question. Just as with President George Bush 43, should he go down to Katrina? Um, Well, Coolidge didn't go down. That's because he's lazy and cruel and mean and doesn't care about people. He's a cold little fellow. That was sort of that attitude even then but he had a reason which is he didn't want a snapshot of the federal government intervention because he didn't want to sign a law that made the federal government responsible for flood infrastructure across the united states he wanted the states to own their own problems and he um so it, 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 whose fault was it? Well, it was partly the states. Let them own their own problems. You create a moral hazard when you hold states harmless and make Washington in charge of everything. And that happens over and over again in other areas. So he didn't go. He's called cool. And the, it's an interesting story. Um, one uh, senator, I think it was Carraway, Thaddeus, I think he's Missouri or Arkansas, thinking, said, um, well, you know, I'm paraphrasing here if this ever happened to Coolidge where he came from, well, he would race right up there, right? He just cares more about New England than he does the South. This is the suggestion Um, that he would call special session of Congress to deal with whatever happened in New England. And there was a kind of divine retribution for Coolidge. After the flood of the Mississippi, there was a terrible flood in his birth state, Vermont. And all the little covered bridges were wiped away, and the railroad was destroyed, and the Christmas tree harvest was wrecked, and all the little Christmas trees were strewn across the bad railroad tracks. It was the saddest thing ever. And Vermont is a state that is that struggles. It's very rocky. They, you know, it doesn't. Um, its agriculture is not easy. They say they farm rocks in Vermont. In any case, it was losing out to the Midwest. Um, it was cold and dark, right? And then came this blow of this terrible flood, right where Coolidge was born. He was very concerned. I think I'm remembering he looked at aerial photographs of his own little town, you know, and all the things that that towns near him that had been wrecked by this. But of course he's supposed to go. It's where he came from. Any politicians nowadays would lobby for their town for the Olympics or what all, you know, Coolidge didn't go. Why? Because he was standing on principle. Someone commented in the newspaper, he can't do for his own what he didn't do for others. American people respected that. Um, The Vermonters respected that. In fact, he went back a year later when the locally led and somewhat federal, but locally led um, intervention, um, uh, you know, and reconstruction occurred. He went back and they greeted him with great love. 'Cause they understood that he was trying to act on principle, however imperfectly. And there are whole books written about this. There was some federal aid, etc., but on balance he was trying to act on principle. People like that. They like leaders who are consistent and who do something unpopular. It didn't hurt him a bit politically. the country, uh, at least the Republican part of the country, was dying for Coolidge to run in 28. His main problem was the rage of his party that he chose not to run, even though he had done that, taken these unpopular measures vis-a-vis the tragic flood of the Mississippi and the tragic flood in Vermont.
0: Mm. And I I mean, like, zooming out a little bit onto federalism as a whole, um, there are times when it can be criticized when it comes to the floods, and I think you've justified them um, quite clearly there. Um, But, you know, what are the main benefits of federalism? You know, the the U.S. kind of led by the front, you know, um, when we founded our country by creating this confederation of states. And um, we're still pretty unique to this day. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe we're we're pretty unique in our system of federalism. Um, So, you know, what makes it so good and how does it make the U.S. stand out?
1: Well, you know, when we built Germany after World War II, we insisted it be federalist. right mm-hmm. so then people we insist there be countries in europe you know henry kiss used to complain about that you can't call Europe. how do i call europe i want one number not 20 right um so i need to call europe and and if mm-hmm. you're a categoric intelligent thinker you like to think in aggregates right it's more efficient you like to scale your work and your conclusions it's the nature of the intelligent animal so this federalism stuff seems confusing what is that but there are very good reasons for it. Um, one is that nobody knows what is right. And the, the farther you are away from a problem, the less you know. If you're in Washington and you're trying to aid schools and a the school needs a Spanish teacher, but you, Americans are obese and so you have a national gym program, you send the school a gym and it gets the hardwood floors and the local construction workers get to lay the floors and they get to put the three, three um, layers of poly down and they get to buy the basketball hoops and they get to put in the bleachers and they pat themselves in the back, but the town already had an almost adequate gym and it didn't have the Spanish teacher, which it really needed because if it's workers are going to learn, um, are going to get jobs, guaranteed they will get a job if they can write in Spanish. Guaranteed, you know, which is almost true, right? If you can write well in Spanish, you can get a job. The town knew that. It knew what jobs were available to its secondary school students. It knew that its obesity problem happened to be less than that of the neighboring town. It needed the Spanish teacher or the French teacher, not the gym. It had no choice. Because how could someone in Washington, however many fancy degrees he has or she, discern what is is necessary to towns? Only individuals can know best what they need. Um, Hyatt called this the knowledge problem. Government officials have a lot of power and a lot of money, but they're kind of insulated from feedback from the market. If you have a company and you're making gyms, you know exactly where gyms are desired and you know exactly where they're less desired and you cater to the market that is growing and needs gyms, Plano, Texas, or whatever. And you stay away from the market that feels it has enough gyms because every day you look at your orders and every order you get gives you information the market is full of information and it's information that has consequences for you and your children because if you sell gyms to places that don't need gyms your company will have to shrink you'll have to lay off your friends and maybe not even get the salary you imagine or have a job so you respond right away to the growth areas for gyms if you're in the gym business just sticking to the metaphor a politician, well, two years later he hears he sent the gym to the wrong place. Maybe he pays for that politically, maybe he doesn't, but the signal is very attenuated, distant, slow. Um, so the more local the government, the better it serves the people. If you're a governor, you're familiar with every gym in your state, usually, and you know what every French department and every Spanish department and every math department looks like. You know, you know these towns, you know their tax base, you know why people move to them and from them. So local is better in terms of government. They say a local tax is always a better tax, just like they say in tax theory, an old tax is better than a new tax. That is a form of tax. Um, Local is always better. And their whole dissertation is written about this. There's a professor at Dartmouth who had um, You know, who had developed a theory about the tax basis of towns and why local tax base taxation was even better than state taxation, because, of course, the state capital is that much farther from the town. And even better than the smart governor is the actual um, town mayor in terms of knowing what a given high school needs um, in his town. So local is usually better. Um, It's not always better, but it's usually better. Um, Maybe not for vaccine development, but for a lot of other things. And even in, um, you know, you have an experiment nationally. I think it was extremely helpful to have different states take different approaches to COVID. We might not like the outcomes. Okay, we learned something. But if we had had uniform approach, which is what um, the discussion uh, um, is now, then we would have never tried uh, the other approaches. We always learn. Um, if we had a uniform approach about ventilators, we would have killed a lot of people we didn't have to kill, for example. New York had a bitter experience with ventilators. It killed people by putting them on ven- ventilators too fast. That's because it was uh, first uh, in the battle. It was you know, sort of at the D-Day of COVID didn't know what to do. It thought ventilators might be the answer. It ordered up a lot of ventilators. It put a whole lot of people on ventilators. They died. We learned later that ventilators were probably um, not the best solution, even for people with low oxygen, for many patients. The um, case fatality rates dropped. If um, all of America had been ventilated the way New York was ventilating, we would just have much higher death numbers. We had to have that New York experiment. And that's that's the value of federalism. A secondary one though, to the first one I mentioned, which is the people closer to their government.
2: Yeah, I think definitely, um, I agree with a lot of what you said. I definitely like federalism a lot, um, especially like going back to one thing you said, um, where basically if one government is making policy for everybody, it tends to be pretty crude in terms of that policy. I definitely think that's fair. And I kind of analogize it. I don't know if this is correct to, um, if you have one government it's similar to having a single company doing some function right essentially a monopoly and in that case it tends to hurt the consumers of the people it's serving versus 50 governments 50 companies essentially all experimenting figuring out what's best for their subset of the population so i'm, I'm not right sure there's, there, that.
1: there that's right you know there's a paradox right this is a um The American consumer worships choice, right down to the kind of coffee he orders, right? Or the kind of coffee maker he favors. He worships choice. It's very important to him. It gets him through his day. He wants to pick which kind of latte he has. And that um, the market knows that. That's why the Starbucks model grew up. Um, But that's not the way central planners think. Um, When Henry Ford developed the Ford, He said the worker can have any color car as long as it's black. Why? Because he believed in the economy of scale and his goal was to speed the assembly line. And he argued the choice slowed growth, which turned out to be a fallacy. But there had to be other car companies to challenge um, Ford. And later, um, a good example of that is uh, the big three versus Japan and Germany. The big three Automakers had one way of making a car, which is with a very militant union and a lot of love and pay for it and a creepy, um, inhumane assembly line, the way the deal was between Detroit and the auto unions in the America of the past. We make life on the assembly line really tough. Uh, a worker cannot stop the assembly line. He has to work at an inhumane pace. And then we give him lots of benefits. That's how, how it developed in the 50s and 60s. So he has a nice hospital, nice vacation, nice early retirement, but an inhumane job. I'm oversimplifying simplifying and making it more primitive than it is. That wasn't necessarily um, a totally correct model. Um, it, you can look at Toyota and a lot of people have studied it. There's a scholar named Michael kuzumano who's really good. Anyway, Toyota, for whatever reason, had weaker unions um, and involved the worker in what was going on in the assembly line. And the worker had the authority to stomp the assembly line and say, since I've been here and I'm very close to the project, i can going tell you the problem here is XYZ and I can solve it. Um, in America, in the 50s and 60s, when there was a problem on the assembly line, they had to call the electrician's union and they had to wait several hours till that union came out of respect for the union and unionization and the expertise of the electrician. The, the, uh, the worker was disenfranchised in exchange for great benefits. Toyota made a better car. It wasn't just that Toyotas were cheaper, um, that they began to beat out American autos. It's that they were better made as well because they improve faster because of input from all levels not just the, the experts in the fancy office so um, you know that's that's an example people know this intuitively it also carries over to government um, so it's, it's not that hard to sell because people know it intuitively from their real life experience
0: and I, I think that the competi- competition model between different states uh, for example is pretty valid. Um, and one thing I want to bring up is that I actually work in um, city government here in San Jose, um, and you know we often have a lot of trouble working with the county, working with the state, working with the school board. I mean I think that there was some number I don't remember what it was, but there's some ridiculous amount of actual governments in the U.S. I think it's some um, something in the hundred thousands of different levels of government, and you know one issue that comes up is the is intergovernmental relations, which is that it can be kind of inefficient sometimes if for each different um, service, there's a different body of government, like even water is its own government in, in San Jose, for example. Um, and do you think that there is an issue of efficiency when it comes to all these different subsets or you know, is there um, any merit at all in a, in a unified government?
1: Um, well, there's there's some merits sometimes for some decisions. The federal government says we need a vaccine by the end of the year. The company is developing it. We need to support the company by um, fast tracking its application while uh, for a vaccine while making clear to people they might die from this vaccine. Um, it's a new vaccine. Let's uh, you know, w- you know, really looking at the risks. That would be an example of the use of a federal health authority that's good. Um, uh, the inefficiencies of local governments, um, one reason it's so creepy um, and, and, and frustrating is a, a newer problem that's developed particularly since the New Deal, since the 30s, which is we what well, we have a sort of false federalism. It goes like this. We respect states. Republicans are supposed to say that. We respect states, right? We respect states. We respect them so much, we give them federal money to do stuff with. Then the states become dependent on the federal government, and that wrecks their decision-making that makes their brain strange. So, for example, um, when it comes to Medicaid, they need, fe- you know, Governor Cuomo needs federal money for Medicaid because federal government is part but not all of Medicaid. And decisions uh, have to do with the federal Medicaid office and what he can get out of the Medicaid authorities, the names of the departments change, but that's basically it, or Medicare. Federal government needs, uh, state governments need Medicare to pay to pay for old people in their states who are um, going to the hospital. And there's a whole lot of interaction. And the Republicans say, this is federalism, because in the case of Medicaid, we're giving money to the states to distribute. I think that's silly. Um, Federal. When someone gives you money, you become their servant, no matter what. And that makes you make strange choices. And you can see that most obviously in the architecture of America post-war. When you go to a public space and it's ugly, and you're trying to figure out why is this ugly, it's ugly because It is a political compromise among different levels of politicians, rather than an an aesthetic experience. The architect doesn't say, how can I make this beautiful, Um, as much as saying, how can I ensure all the funds funds flow correctly to this project. (laughs) So you're like, why do all these houses have balconies when nobody goes out on their balcony? Um, because outside it's so loud, because these apartments are right on the highway. Well, sometimes uh, apartment building builders, uh, uh, developers get paid per room. And sometimes a balcony counts as a room, even though no one uses them if they're on a highway where it's loud. So wouldn't the people rather have an indoor room if the highway outside is loud and very thick windows? Oh, but uh, you know that would be more expensive. A cheap room is a balcony. And the developers counting on the federal money. So, so we aren't really in a federal system anymore. We're in a kind of faux federalism. And Nixon, particularly Richard Nixon, made that worse.
0: Yeah. Thanks for being on. Appreciate it. This was a great conversation.
1: Oh, I just say thank you. I think these are good questions. Um, the conversation should be not. Um, you know, the, the American history provides a wealth of evidence, and sometimes it's hard for undergraduates and high schoolers and graduate students to get all the evidence, Um, but the evidence is there. No president is perfect. Um, What we do at Coolidge is we try to show Coolidge as he was, um, warts and all, um, and the theory and the reality that all these presidents have something to offer. Um, It's not an up, down, zero-sum ranking um, when it comes to presidents. It's our history. with. just, just plenty of stories in it and plenty of utility from improbable places. So I thank you for doing this.